Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Our scripture reading is from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of God. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Pray with me, please. Father, we come to your word again this morning. We hope to be shaped and formed by it once again. We pray that we would um, just open the eyes of our hearts to see you for who you are, see ourselves for who we are, and and. Uh, Make the changes that need to be changed. But Lord, we just do want to come away encouraged this morning. We want to come away and just know that, um, Lord, that you love us deeply and uh, eternally. Um, So open our eyes again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, flight school begins with ground school. Before you can actually get into the airplane and go fly you need to learn some basics of aviation. So you go through ground school. You, you learn how to read the instruments. You learn how to read a, a flight chart. You, you learn how to read uh, you know, the weather information that comes to you before you ever actually get into the airplane. In a lot of ways, that's kind of where we've been through the first three chapters here of Ephesians. We've kind of been a little bit in, in ground school, right? We're sort of learning, sort of in a way, the basics, the, some doctrinal Uh, many important doctrinal things, but we haven't actually got into the airplane to go flying yet. But that's what we're about to do here in Ephesians 4. We're we're about to go leave ground school and go fly for real and see if we can actually put to use all of the wonderful things um, that we have learned. It's where really the rubber meets the road. You know, all those wonderful doctrinal truths that we saw in the first three chapters of Ephesians are about to get real. Okay? It's time to go from doctrine to duty, from indicative to imperative, from things that are true to the things that we must do, from creed to conduct, from a Christian's wealth to his or her walk, from exposition to exhortation. Here's another way to think about it. We're going to go from gospel doctrine, what the gospel says, to gospel culture, what the gospel does. And a church that gets gospel doctrine right also ought to get gospel culture right. If your beliefs are orthodox and biblical, it follows that the church will look and walk and talk and act a lot like Jesus. So Ray Ortland is a preacher. He did a podcast recently with the gospel coalition called You're Not Crazy. It's a a podcast for young pastors who are um, maybe not in as um, situation similar here. We have multiple elders. Maybe they're by themselves. We're trying to figure out how to do things. I listened to it. It was wonderful. And a lot of these ideas about gospel doctrine, 
gospel culture come from that podcast. Anyway, he, he puts it this way, and I think this is really helpful. The gospel says the truths of Christ crucified, buried, resurrected, and coming again. That's what it says. What, gosp- what the gospel does through what it says is create beauty in human relationships. And here's, this is where it gets important. However, a church can unsay by its culture what it says by its doctrine and not even know it. He goes on to say, the vertical glories of the gospel come down upon us in the church and spread out horizontally. And when a church is only sensitive to what it should say and not equally alert and sensitive to what it should be, the vibe, the tone, the intangibles, I might add, the atmosphere of the church can counteract what it intends to do. What's really interesting about gospel culture is that it's actually characterized by both unity, which we'll see here today in verses 1 through 6, and also by diversity, which we'll see next week in verses 7 through 16. Both are part of gospel culture. So then let's dig in and see what God has to say about building gospel culture at Orchard Bible Church. So point one in your outlines, the call to gospel culture. Paul makes his first imperative here in verse 1. Walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, every basic training involves marching. You're in a platoon, and they're marching you from one place to another, left, right, left, right. Well, sometimes you've got to go a little bit farther than you would otherwise like to. And to sort of break the monotony of the left, right, left, right, the platoon commanders will get a little sing-songy. You know, they'll go, they'll go left, right, and left, and that kind of thing, right? So sometimes they would say, lean back and strut, lean back and strut, lean back, lean back, lean back and strut. And so that call to lean back and strut as you're in that platoon, in a lot of ways, was to kind of break the monotony, but also to remind you that when you're in uniform, and you're representing the United States of America, you should lean back and strut. You should throw your shoulders back and stick your chest out because you represent the United States of America. In a lot of ways, that's what Paul is saying. Of course, we would add humility to that. But worthy, here's the point, though. Worthy implies something of equal value, okay? Worthy implies something of equal value. This means that the quality of your life The ethics and morality by which you live must be of equal weight to the gospel. They must live up to the glorious inheritance which we've received in Christ. So this implies an equal emphasis on both doctrine and duty. You see, doctrine without practice is cold and brittle, and it doesn't accomplish the mission it's been given. And practice without doctrine leads to error. There are lots of warm feelings and a sense of maybe doing What's right, but it's, it's not anchored in any kind of truth. And then, thus, it goes astray. I think, let's go back to the flying analogy that we started with, ground school, right? And now, we're actually going to go flying. When we know and expound gospel doctrine, but our gospel culture is lacking, it's like staying in ground school. It's like you're just going to constantly keep learning how to read charts and 
weather notices and these kinds of things. We don't ever actually accomplish the mission that we've been given, to, which is to fly. And if we skip ground school and don't put enough emphasis on it, if maybe all we learn is that when I push the stick forward, the houses get smaller or bigger. When I pull the stick back, the houses get smaller. If that's all I learn, what happens when I need to fly in the clouds? That's problematic, isn't it? You're going to crash and burn. It's the same thing here. Gospel doctrine, understanding God's holiness, our sin, and what God accomplished in love at the cross is the fuel for gospel culture. We must have both. And that's what walking worthy of the call looks like. So let's just dig in then a little bit of what Paul says when he defines gospel culture. There's five characteristics you can see here in the passage. Humility, gentleness, patience, love, and unity. We'll talk about each one in a little bit of detail here this morning. So let's start with gospel culture is defined by humility. So pride. Pride, which is really just the habit of thinking of, thinking of and putting ourselves first, is common to all men and all women at all times. Okay, so it's common to everyone at all times. It's no surprise that Paul starts his call to gospel culture with humility. What's interesting is that the antidote to pride is not necessarily humility. Okay, so we're all prideful. We'll be humble. Good luck. Good luck with that one. It isn't like, humility's not like that. It's not like cultivating patience and gentleness and self-control. Okay, so I work in the world of financial derivatives, and I can already see your eyes glazing over and nodding off and confusion. Just hang on with me. I'm not going to try to help you understand swaps and options and all those kinds of things. A derivative, though, is a financial contract. Where it gets its name from is very simple. It's a financial contract that derives its value from something else in the market. Okay? I think humility is a lot like a derivative fruit of the Spirit. More than something we actively pursue, it's something that derives from steadily pursuing those things which are more tangible, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. I think C.S. Lewis describes humility as following. It's kind of one of those things that you know it when you see it, and this is how... C.S. Lewis describes it. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a person who is always telling you that, well, of course he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I think MacArthur brings to mind a great, John MacArthur brings a, to mind a great example from the New Testament, from the, uh, actually the writers of the four Gospels. I think this is very interesting. MacArthur says this, In all four Gospels, the writers hide themselves. And focus attention on Jesus. And a great example is this. Matthew identifies himself as a despised tax collector. Which none of the us... By the way, John 
and Luke and Mark. Nobody says that about Matthew. Only Matthew says that about himself. On the other hand, Matthew does not mention the feast he gave for his fellow tax collectors. It was actually only Luke that said that about him. Because of Matthew's humility, it was left to Luke to write about that. I think that's really interesting. And it's a great picture of what humility looks like. Philippians 2 is really kind of the marquee passage on humility. And we don't have time for it, but I will just point out verses 3 and 4 to you. This is what Paul writes. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, as if he needed to say that. We're going to look to our own interests, don't worry. But then he goes on to say this, but also to the interests of others. Paul goes on to build on this gospel characteristic of humility, and of course, none other, none other than the life of Jesus himself, right? Who left heaven and took on flesh. So, just very quickly on a, maybe a practical point line here, how do you cultivate humility? You know, it's kind of a derivative, you know, sort of fruit of the Spirit. Well, first of all, I think it starts with admitting that you are prideful. If you think you're humble, I can guarantee you're not, right? Admit you are prideful. Own the fact that in your core, you care most about yourself. Each of us thinks that all of life revolves around each one of us. It's a movie. Life is a movie. And you're the main character. And everyone else is a supporting actor or an extra. But has it ever occurred to you that you are a supporting actor or an extra in everyone else's movie? And if you don't see that, I would just ask, ask God to show that to you. Just ask him, Lord... This guy's telling me I'm prideful. I don't feel that way. Show me. Help me understand. He'll do that. And then another very practical thing, and this actually goes right back to C.S. Lewis's example. Take interest in others. Ask people questions about themselves. Ask them questions about family, about work, about what God's teaching them in the scriptures right now. There's no better way to take the spotlight off yourself and to put it on others than to just ask them questions. It's really simple. So that's our first defining characteristic of gospel culture. It's humility. The second is gentleness. So your version may say meekness, and to be honest, that actually might be a better translation, but in our context today, the idea of meekness for most people brings to mind the idea of timidity or even weakness. And that's not at all what it means. That's not meekness. What we're talking about here is power under control. I would just submit that, burn that into your brain. Meekness is power under control. We have a very real example of power under control at our home on a daily basis. Our dog, Blue. Blue is an 80-pound black golden doodle. Blue is, if you got all that, black golden doodle named Blue. Blue is a good boy. He really is. I love Blue. He's a, but he's a big boy. Okay, so 80 pounds, and I'm telling you, his back is like, it's like this wide. He's a, he's a big guy. And we've got a couple of neighbor dogs who are golden doodles as well. They're sleek and fast. They'll run all day. Blue's good for about three or four fetches, and then he's had enough. You know, he's more of kind of like a linebacker, all right? Um, he loves a good tug of war. He's actually dri- dri- uh, 
dragged me across the floor in a tug of war. Like, he just pull all of me. He's a powerful dog. When he barks, it's actually kind of ferocious sounding. I mean, it's loud. It's a little scary. Um, but here's the thing. He really is a gentle and meek dog. We've had many young children over to our house. They've tugged on his ears. They've pulled on his tail and nary a snarl or a growl or anything. He just allows them to do. You can even mess with his food. And for I know people who have have dogs, you know what a big deal that is. You get between a dog and its food, it can be trouble, not with blue. He is a powerful dog, but his power is under control. That's what meek gentleness looks like. It doesn't snap or growl at others when they provoke, pull, or tug at us. It responds to provocation without harshness or anger, but with gentle patience. Speaking of patience, let's look at the next characteristic that defines gospel culture. That's patience. Now, the Greek word is a compound of anger and a long time. It's a, it's a compound of anger and a long time. That doesn't mean angry for a long time. It means a long time until you get angry. John Chrysostom said it this way, which I think is really helpful about patience. He says, it's to have a wide and big soul. I think that's great, to have a wide and big soul, that you've got the capacity in you as you're fed and powered by the Holy Spirit to receive a lot of stuff before you kind of have had enough. You've got a wide and big soul. Patience is bearing up under provocation. It's being able to accept or tolerate. This is, this is great. It's being able to accept or tolerate delays, problems, or suffering, and this is the important part, without becoming annoyed or anxious. I mean, how many of us can accept the fact that we're stuck at a red light or we're in a terrible situation under a boss or with a terrible neighbor that's treating us badly? We bear up underneath it because we don't have any choice, right? We might be super annoyed and anxious about the whole thing, but we're bearing up underneath it. That's not what we're talking about here. The patience that Paul is talking about is a kind that that bears up in a way without becoming annoyed or anxious. There's a, I think, a, a, a neat um, kind of, I'll call it a Hebrew fable. It's a story about Abraham uh, that I think illustrates this point well. So, so Abraham was sitting outside his tent one evening when he saw an old man, weary from age and journey, coming toward him. Abraham rushed out, greeted him, and then invited him into his tent. There he washed the old man's feet and gave him food and drink. The old traveler replied, oh, excuse me, the old man immediately began eating without saying any prayer or blessing. So Abraham asked him, don't you worship God? The old traveler replied, I worship fire only and reverence no other God. When he heard this, Abraham became incensed. He grabbed the old man by the shoulders picked him up and threw him out of his tent and into the cold night air. When the old man had departed, God called to his old friend Abraham and asked where the stranger was. Abraham replied, I forced him out because he did not worship you. God answered, 
I have been patient with him these 80 years, although he dishonors me. Could you not endure him one night? We need this kind of patience with each other. We don't know what God is doing in each other's lives as we create issues for one another, right? But what we can do is be patient as we allow God to work in one another's lives and to change us. So gospel culture is marked by patience. It's also defined by forbearing love. Now, this is agape love. This is kind of the love that's unique in a way to God. It's kind of a Christian love. And it's important that we clarify that because there are four words for love in the Greek language. In English, we have one word for love, and that's love. As one author wrote, you can love your mother and you can love pizza. Just because it's the same word doesn't mean it's the same thing. So it just behooves us to take a moment to define agape love. I think Vine's dictionary is helpful here. It says, agape love is not an impulse from the feelings. It does not always run with our natural inclinations. Nor does it spend itself only upon those for whom some affinity is discovered. We've got something in common, right? We both love the Broncos or whatever it might be. Love seeks the welfare of all and works no ill to any. Agape love seeks opportunity to do good to all men, especially to them that are of the household of the faith. And that's not to say that agape love is devoid of emotion or affection. Certainly that can be a part of agape love. But agape love is marked by a willful decision, an act of the will to love someone. It involves faithfulness and commitment. And it is a forbearing love. This is what Paul, in particular in the context of the church, as he's encouraging the Ephesians and the other churches that would read this letter. Remember, this is a circular letter. He's encouraging them, bear with one another. Forbear. You're going to have foibles and problems. You're going to get underneath one another's skin from time to time. Bear with one another in love. God is commanding us to love the difficult people in our lives. I love the way the New Living Translation interpreter states it. It says, make allowances for each other's faults. Make allowances for each other's faults. None of us are perfect. And you might think, I could ask you to think for a minute, think of that person that really, really gets under your skin. And it really bothers you. I can guarantee you that you're that person for somebody else. We all do that to some degree, right? And in every case, we're called to forbearing love, and this is critical, to put up, right? You could think of forbearance as sort of putting up with each other. Putting up is not a grudging tolerance. Grudging tolerance would be more of a lack of forgiveness, okay? And a lack of forgiveness comes from a lack of understanding the cross. When we can't, or won't remember what God has done for us at the cross, we can't or won't remember that we have no right to withhold forgiveness. And there's no place for that in the church. Gospel culture of love doesn't withhold forgiveness. It forgives and seeks restoration in all humility, gentleness, and patience. So do you see how these four characteristics of gospel culture kind of weave together, these first four, I think in particular, they really do weave together and they build off of one another. They sort of, as, you're, you know, as you 
grow in gentleness and patience. Your humility grows. As you grow in love, you become more gentle and patient. They all sort of work and feed off of one another. I think, I love how Ray Ortland puts this. He says, the vertical glories, I think I said this already, the vertical glories of the gospel come down upon us in the church and they spread out horizontally. That's what this looks like. And they all really culminate in this last defining, defining feature of gospel culture, and that's unity. That's unity. So gospel culture is defined by unity. Verse 3, that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, unity is an already, not yet kind of thing. And we talk about already, not yet a lot in terms of um, sort of end times type issues. But it's also true here when we think of unity. Believers are united in the Spirit of God. We share His Spirit. We're marked by His Spirit. We're sealed by His Spirit. It's not something that we did. It was something that was done for us and to us. We are already unified as brothers and sisters in God's family, the church. But we are not yet fully sanctified in that unity. We have very far to go. Thus, we must maintain it. In fact, Paul says that we should be eager. Do you see that? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I think that's really interesting that he says eager there. One commentator noted that the verb eager has an element of haste of urgency or even a sense of a crisis to it. And they, they suggested it could be rendered, yours is the initiative. Go and do it. Make it happen. Now let's be clear. Or let's be clear. Unity doesn't mean we agree on everything. I think we understand that. What it does mean, though, is that we put interests of others first. It kind of ties back to humility. It means that we seek to understand before we make judgments. We ask questions before we make judgments. That we decide we will not let differences of secondary and third-level issues drive a wedge between us. We just won't let that happen. I think John Stott, from his commentary, shares a helpful analogy about how we could become complacent about unity and how we need to be eager to maintain it. And I kind of paraphrased his analogy here. He says, imagine a couple... Mr. and Mrs. Smith and their three sons, Tom, Dick, and Harry. They are a family. Marriage and parenthood have united them. But after years of bickering and fighting and nursing grudges, the Smiths divorce. Likewise, Tom, Dick, and Harry fight with their parents and with each other. They fall out and are estranged from their parents and each other. One moves to Canada, the other one to the UK, and the other one to Mexico. The family doesn't meet. They don't speak with one another. They don't send emails. They don't even follow each other on social media. Worse than that, they are so contemptuous toward one another that they've actually all changed their last name. This is an awful situation, yes? Now imagine that you're a cousin in this family. What would you do? Would you say, well... They're still a family. They just aren't doing so great right now. Really, it doesn't matter that they're estranged. And just accept things and move on? Of course you wouldn't do that. You'd fight for the unity that is true in a very real sense in this family, but is completely at lacking in word and in action. You, you would try to be a peacemaker. You would say to them, 
remember to maintain the unity of the family by the bonds of peace and encourage them to repent and be reconciled. And then Stott closes with this exhortation. I'll just directly quote him. He says this, In the same way, the fact of the church's indestructible unity is no excuse. It's no excuse for accepting the tragedy of its actual disunity. So before we pivot to application, I just want to look at the last three verses where we see the basis for gospel culture. The basis for gospel culture is, as we've been saying, gospel doctrine. Right? The vertical informs, instructs, and drives the horizontal. Paul brings us back to what amounts to a doctrinal statement then, here in these last three verses. And, and to be honest, the emphasis could not be clear as you read these three verses. There are seven ones. He says one seven times. Now there's not necessarily anything significant about that number seven in this case, but there are seven ones. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, and one God and Father of all. Another way to say this is there aren't alternative churches. There's not another body under Christ that you can go be a part of. There's not an alternative source of hope or faith that's real. There's not an alternative salvation. There is only one salvation in Christ alone. There is only one Lord. There is no other creator except a creator God except our God. And here's what's really beautiful. Some have even posited, some of the commentators posited that this is, they think this is some kind of creed. Most say no, it's just Paul being Paul. But whatever the case may be, the beauty is there. The unity, as you see this, the unity of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is woven throughout this entire statement. And so I think that's really important. Our unity as a, as a, as a family, as a body, as a church, is actually rooted and grounded in the unity of God himself in the Trinity. And I would say that the reality that reality is more real, in a sense, than anything I'm saying to you right now. As weird as that sounds. That we are one. Whether we do it well or not, we are one because our God is one. Well, as we pivot now to application, I want to kind of look at two things. Two questions that I asked in the outline here. What hinders gospel culture? And then what can we do to foster gospel culture? I mean, obviously, these are massive questions that we could spend many Sundays talking about. So in some ways, I'm going to cherry-pick some stuff here that I, that's just kind of on my heart, stuff that God, I think, has been teaching me, I want to share with you. So this can't possibly, I'll just say this, this can't possibly be exhaustive. But I hope you find this useful. So let's just start with what hinders gospel culture. Again, could have talked about a lot. Could have talked about harshness. Could have talked about a lack of transparency with each other, lack of honesty. I could have talked about how we have a tendency to isolate ourselves from one another. I mean, you better believe that that hinders gospel culture when we try to go Lone Ranger. But there's three things I want to focus on this morning. First is anger. 
The second is contempt, which is really just anger's refined older brother. And then lastly, disunity on secondary and third issues. Let's look at anger first. Anger destroys gospel culture because it hurts others. It's just as simple as that. When I see that you are angry with me, when I see that in your countenance, in the tone of your voice, I'm hurt. Now, I might not like feel emotionally hurt, but there's a hurt that's, that's done there. And taken to an extreme, when it's very clear that whether by your words or by your physical action, you are trying to hurt somebody, that you're actually, in a sense, trying to destroy that person. Proverbs 18.14 says it this way, A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? Who can bear a crushed spirit? And when you explode in anger, if you've ever done that at somebody, the only thing you're trying to do is to crush their spirit. Dallas Willard writes, There's nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. And so what follows on anger and contempt are ideas that I've gleaned from Dallas Willard. It's interesting that in the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> the first sin issue that Jesus addresses is not lust. It's not being tied up with material things. It's not prayer. It's not looking for the, to, to, to be you know, lauded by men. The first issue he addresses is Anger. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Now, anger, I think, is probably not a primary issue for most of you here this morning. But I know, similar to pride, that it is an issue at some level for every human being. I mean, have you ever been annoyed? You were angry. Have you ever responded harshly, even just one word? You were angry. Have you ever felt like your rights were being impinged upon? You were angry. That's anger, and it's likely unrighteous anger. Now, righteous anger is possible. I think this morning at the Lord's Supper, we talked about what's happening in the Ukraine. Anger directed towards Putin is a righteous anger, no doubt. But most of our anger is unrighteous, and we all struggle with it from one degree to another, and the fact is it hinders gospel culture. So what is anger? The late David Pallison, I think, gives a very helpful definition. If you're a note taker, I'd write this down. This is what he says. That anger is judgments against perceived evil. It's a judgment against perceived evil. So let me give you some example. I'm against red lights when I'm late. Actually, I'm against red lights all the time. I'm against people who don't get it, whatever it might be. I'm against so-and-so who doesn't see things my way on my pet issue. What does it look like? Well, of course, it can be red-faced, raged, screaming, and even fists. But it's also low-grade annoyance with the guy who always interrupts you. It can be simmering resentment. 
against the woman who got the opportunity that you didn't. We talk about nursing a grudge, and that's actually the perfect descriptor. Because to keep that that grudge going, we have to keep going back to that perceived evil that was done to us. We have to keep nursing it. And at its root, anger is most often about a perceived or real violation, not of something that happened to other people, but of our our self-kingdoms, where we're the king or the queen. Many of us walk around with the perception that we are in control, that our, own, that our lives are our own, and when someone or something violates our sovereignty, we get angry. Is that another way? Anger often comes from a place of self-righteousness. So how can we square that? How can we square anger with humility and gentleness or patience or love? You can't. And so anger, even in its low-grade forms of annoyance and resentment, hinder the beauty of the gospel culture because they harm people. Both the people that it's directed at, ourselves, and frankly, bystanders for the really explosive kind. And so we must guard ourselves against this, this type of of sin. Let's look at contempt. Contempt. Like I said, contempt is the uh, refined older brother of anger. I say refined because it's kind of like next level anger. For the person who has learned outward anger is not socially acceptable. I'm not allowed to do that. I know I'm not allowed to raise my voice or make an ugly face. But I can certainly speak poorly of others. In fact, in some circles, knowing who to speak contemptuously of is a way to show that you're in. You kind of know what's going on. In fact, when you don't speak contemptuously of the people that you're supposed to speak contemptuously of, others will look at you with some mild contempt. Don't they know? Contempt is about defining, ultimately, contempt is about defining who's in and who's out. I think Dallas Willard is particularly insightful here. Listen to what he writes. The intent and the effect of contempt is always to exclude someone, push them away, leave them out and isolated. This explains why filth is so constantly invoked in expressing contempt and why contempt is so cruel and so serious. It breaks the social bond even more severely than anger. Yet it may also be done with such refinement. How often we see it in the schoolyard, at a party, even in the home or church sanctuary. Someone is being put down or oh so precisely omitted, left out. It is a constant in most of human life. And in the course of normal life, one is rarely in a situation where contempt is not at least hovering in the wings. So how does that square with gospel culture where unity is the defining feature? When we speak poorly of one another, it doesn't. It has nothing to do with being eager, earnest, urgent to maintain the unity that the Spirit has given us in the bond of peace. We must not do it. And then lastly, disunity around non-gospel issues. We just say, sadly, much of our gospel culture can be hindered by non-gospel issues over which we disagree. Now, to be clear, nobody's saying we have to agree on everything. We know that that's not the case. There's a lot that Scripture speaks to that we need to use wisdom to live by, right? 
But what we cannot, must not do is allow those things to hinder our love for one another. I think a note from the, the Systematic Theology Study Bible was really helpful here. It says, differences opinion of opinion will always exist where Scripture does not give clear guidelines. But if they keep the church from glorifying God with one voice, the church has forgotten its purpose. Now, what I get from this passage is that, in Ephesians here, is that Jesus laid down his life to buy us life and that we would be one. Seven ones, right? I think in John 17, he actually prays four times that we would be one. He says it in verse 11, and then he says it again in verses 21, 22, and 23 of John 17. Four times he prays that we would be one. So do you think that maybe it's a big deal to Jesus? I think it is. It's a pretty big deal to him, right? It's a bigger deal to him than your views on masks or vaccines. It's a bigger deal to him than your view on the election, politics, and politicians. It's a bigger deal than your views on the role of government and citizens' lives. It's a bigger deal than your views on schooling and what kind of diet you should have and what foods that you should eat. We can hold views on all these things and be very different from one another. And we can hold these views with great conviction and passion even. But we cannot hold these views higher than those things which are a part of the faith handed down once for all. So the last point here in our outline. So if that's stuff that hinders gospel culture, what, how do we cultivate more gospel culture? Well, first I would just say, let's go back to Matthew 5, where we were just a, a moment before, um, where Jesus was instructing us on... Um, on the sin of anger. He goes on to say in verse 23, he says, uh, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. One way that we can foster gospel culture with one another is to seek each other out in reconciliation when we know that we've hurt somebody else, to go and find them, to have the courage to go and seek reconciliation with them. And what does that look like? First, it starts with an honest apology. And it's so important that you call the sin for what it is. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll give you a real-life example. If I've yelled at one of my children, the apology is not, I'm sorry for yelling at you. Maybe that's part of it. The apology is, I'm sorry for getting angry at you. That was wrong. That's what a real apology looks like. You call the sin for what it is. So seek out forgiveness. Call the sin for what it is. And then the person on the other side, guess what? Ball's in your court. And you need to respond with gentleness and patience and love and humility and forgive them. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven you. You have no right. You have no right to withhold forgiveness. I'm going to read another quote by Ortland, and I think I'm going to wrap up. We're at the bottom of the hour here. Our relationships with one another reveal to us what we really believe as opposed to what we think 
we believe. Our convictions as opposed to our opinions. It is possible for the gospel to remain at the shallow level of opinion, even sincere opinion, without penetrating to the deeper level of conviction. But when the gospel grips us down in our convictions, we embrace its implications wholeheartedly. And therefore, when we mistreat one another, our problem is not a lack of surface niceness. Get this. It's a lack of gospel depth. What we need is not only better manners, but far more faith. And I think last week, Lars talked and he preached to us from the previous passage about God's love for us. If we're going to do this with each other, if we're actually going to move out in humility and gentleness and patience and love and try to be unified, to to have an eagerness for the unity of the body, the only way to make that happen is when we tie ourselves to the cross. When we recognize how loved we are in the cross. And it's from that place when we see the depth of our sin and the greatness of God's mercy for us in the cross and his love for us there that we are able to move out in that vertical, horizontal fashion that we've been talking about. That we're able to build that gospel culture because we're convicted of the great love for which God has loved us. And so I would just say in closing that if you're here this morning and this is eye-opening to you or it's not something that you've heard before that you want to know maybe a little bit more, maybe your conscience is even pricked this morning. You've been angry and you have not asked for forgiveness. For the brothers and sisters here, for the believers, I encourage you, go find one another and be reconciled. That's what gospel culture, that's going to build an atmosphere of love here. And if you're not a believer, I would encourage you, come and find me. Let's have a conversation afterward about what it means to actually be forgiven so that you can live from a place that, as that John Chrysostom said, a big and open soul to be able to share with others. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this great word this morning about our unity that we have in your son Jesus about this just this call to walk worthy. Lord, it is hard to walk worthy. And there's been a lot of exhortation this morning and a lot of to-dos, but Lord, we just want to remember as we go out into this week that we are loved, that you love us and that that love for us was shown so great in the cross where your wrath was poured out on yourself, on your son and not us. And instead, we get life and a place to live just a whole, real, human existence as you made it to be. Lord, we're so thankful for that. Bless us now as we go into this week and we spread your love with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.